Mark My Words shares Mark Homer's contrarian views on investing, business, finance, economics, and all things money. Mark interviews the world's most successful business, finance, and money experts, as well as imparting his knowledge in a factual, direct, and no-nonsense manner. Welcome to Mark My Words, and here is your host, Mark Homer. Hello, and welcome to Mark My Words. This is Mark Homer. I've got one of my good friends here today who I'm going to be talking to about business, about leadership of big organisations, the council, he's been involved in the NHS, a whole load of stuff, but I'm, I'm not going to go into that. Let's talk to him. So I've got Marco Soresti here. Marco, welcome. Hi. Interesting. So Marco, just give us a little bit of history around who you are, what you've done, and, and really what your vision is. Well, I, I mean, I came to the UK in 1953 with my parents. I was two years old. I went to Orton Secondary Modern School. I was running my first business by the time I was 12 years old, making, uh, making um, fruit bowls on the school lathe and selling them, getting the wood out of the, uh, out of the um, groundsman and selling these fruit bowls. Did quite well out of that. And by the time I was 18, I had a delicatessen and I've started my property business. And it just sort of been growing since there, you know. So you started your property business, but I mean, you're obviously being quite modest. You've done a hell of a lot more than that, haven't you? I mean, you you went through, you know, you, you, you had a mentor, you, you built your property portfolio, and then you went off into business and then into the NHS, is that right? Yeah, I mean, I was very lucky in many, in many ways because I did meet a, a very wealthy business mentor who took a liking to me and taught me all the things that you'll never learn in a school or a university. I mean, his his favourite expression, and I will never ever forget it, used to, used to say to me, son, one of these days you'll be intelligent enough to understand how stupid you are. And, you know, when you think about it, it is mm. so true. You have to reach a certain level of intelligence to understand what you don't understand. You don't know what you don't, you don't know. know. You don't know. If you don't know what the question is, how on earth are you ever going to find the answer? Mm. And he was so right. Yeah, I, I, I started building up my, uh, my, my property business. I then was um, given the opportunity to become an NHS chair in 1990, 1993 in the, first, in the second wave of NHS chairs. It was a really great, great experience. I then became the national chairman of the Trust Federation. And I was responsible, together with a few friends, for creating what is now called the NHS Confederation. I was one of the founder chairs, together with a lady called Catherine McLaughlin, who was a great lady, is a great lady. You know, I had a 17-year, 25-year career in the NHS, 17 of those years as a trust chairman. And I'm proud to say that today everybody goes on about uh, merging adult social care and health. I did it before it was uh, popular, before everybody was saying it was the, the right thing and the de rigueur thing to do. I did it together with one of my colleagues from the local authority. So, I mean, being a trust chairman, yeah. I mean, that's, that's a, a pretty big job. Just give us a, an idea of the scale of, of, of that challenge. I mean... How many, how many people did you have in your trust working for you? Hospitals, what, what, what did it involve? In well, the first one, the, the first chairmanship that I had was for an organisation called North West Anglia Healthcare Trust. And that was, the geographically, it was the largest community trust in the UK. 
And we used to have responsibility for mental health. We had responsibility for community hospitals. We had responsibility for community services, GP services, primary care, all that sort of thing. Not the main big DGH hospitals. We also had responsibility for Stamford. Stamford Hospital was, was part of my remit at the time. And you'll, you'll understand what I mean. When I took over as chairman and I started doing the tour just to get a feeling and an understanding of how big this organisation was, Peterborough was, if you like, at one end of it and Kings Lynn was at the other end of it and it was nearly as far the other way, Stamford right the way out to Doddington and Chatteris. That were all part of, of my trust. And when we were trying to reorganise it and make it all work together, there were 27 different IT software packages that were being used. And in one office alone, there were seven in the same office. So in the same office, some of the computers couldn't talk to each other. So the level of complication and, and bits of this going around everywhere, and I guess you'd got different IT maintenance people oh, coming absolutely. in. absolutely. What, complete confusion? Well, very, a complete difficulty for certain. Mm. You know, I mean, people knew what they were doing, so I don't think confusion is the right word, but, you know, unnecessary difficulty. And, I mean, the big failure in the, in the uh, IT reorganisation of the NHS that cost, the, cost the, the government about £10 billion, cost us about £10 billion, it just shows how difficult it is and it has been to try and get all systems to work together. I mean, it's a fascinating subject, it's a fascinating area. I don't know whether we ever will have a single system across the NHS, but wouldn't it be fantastic if we could? I don't think it'll happen in my lifetime. <laughs> Maybe one day. <laughs> so from there, you you went on, you grew a number of businesses, yeah. and you became the leader of Peterborough City Council. Yeah. Just tell us about that journey. Well, I went to an auction in 1972, uh, sorry, 1976, where I went to a property auction, and that evening, between the actual sale, auction sale, and some private purchases afterwards from vendors, I bought in total 28 houses. That's a lot in one go. It's a lot in one go. But in 1976, that was only 30,000 odd pounds. 30 grand, what, for yeah, the whole lot? For the whole lot. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you were paying, what, an average price? Just over a thousand pounds a house. A grand a house, yeah, brilliant. You know, and that yeah. really got me started. Yeah. And, and, it, and it was in the days when there were when there was restrictive uh, restrictive tenancies. So people would sell the houses and they were paying, you know, half a crown a week in, in, in rent and stuff like that. But of course, you, you know, I know it sounds cruel, but if you think about it, most of those tenancies were very elderly, were very old. And statistically, if you had 100, you'd get about 11% vacancies every year. And that, and and from an economic point of view, that adds up. So basically, when they move out, then you'd end up getting market rent for you'd it. Get vacant possession, market rent. You do something with it, and and then the the value would just return return to normal. Normal, and and yeah. of course, you know, a lot of people, you know, a lot of landlords or agencies sold these properties without ever talking to the tenants, mm. because one of the things I'd go and do is so. Well, you know, do you want to move out? I'll give you. I'll, I'll pay for the move and give you a couple of thousand pound or whatever. And some of these people were only too happy to take the money and go and live with, go and live somewhere closer to their kids or family or whatever. You'd be surprised how many of my tenants took the money and went. Mm, it's interesting, and I think there's a market 
well, it, it's changed a little bit, but you do see in, in London at the big property auctions that the, these properties, not necessarily 28 in one go, yeah. but they do seem to come up every now and again. Yeah. yeah. And they're like half the value. Half the price. Um, or half the price. Yeah. Until, uh, until Marco comes along and offers them a deal and well, maybe... You- People will take the money. Some people, not everybody. Some people will take the money, and and sort of that because that was so successful, and I built up quite a quite a large property portfolio. Unfortunately, I had the same difficulties with the banks that everybody had, mm-hmm. and and I don't have enough. I don't have two or three million pounds to sue them. I wish I did, because I think they probably owe me a lot more than that. But. Uh, I, you know, I decided that that I thought uh, well, I was I was told and advised and to, to stand for a ward in Peterborough as a councillor, uh, which I did, and and that was quite interesting. That was the start of my political career, and I I I, I did five years to start off with. Lost my seat. It was it was usual story. I went into this seat built it up from a marginal seat to a, a very big margin and uh, the association on the day or the walk you know the run-up to the election the association said to me well you've got a safe seat you can't lose that why don't you go and help um, in those days it was brian rush and a guy called graham murphy and i said well okay we'll go and help is anything for the party of course i went and did that and actually left my ward because we all thought we were going to win it I left my ward and went to help these other two new candidates. They both won, and I lost my seat by 30 votes. And what year was that when you, when you went in? I went in in, the, I think it was 95 or 96, and I lost it in 2001. Yeah. Um, in the gen, and it was the same day as the general election, and I lost it to the Liberals when there was this big Liberal surge. Yeah, yeah. And so then I had a rest. And concentrated on the businesses and the family and and what have you. And again, the association asked me to stand as a paper candidate. Yeah. No, not really to do any work or even to try and win in in two thousand and eight, I think it was. And uh, I did that. And of course, I can't. I don't have it in me to sit back and do nothing. And I'd been taught by Lord Mulwiney how to run a proper. A proper election campaign. There isn't anybody that knows how to run an election campaign better than his lordship. I remember yeah. I did a little bit of canvassing with you one yeah, day. You and, did. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you well, know, it's yeah. a military operation. Yeah. <laughs> it really is a military operation. So you want to get out there. You, yeah. you know, you've got so many people that you want to speak to, and you want to get them out on the day to come and vote. And that's that's simple as that. And if you can get them out to come and vote for you on the day, you've got a chance. Mini buses, knocking uh, on doors, knocking on doors, absolutely yeah. everything. Yeah. You know, taking people to the polling station, yeah. making sure that they've got postal votes if they're not going to be there, and so on. So it's really, really, really interesting thing to do. And of course, what's even more interesting is you're meeting the people that are going to be the electors. And you begin to understand their issues and, and the problems that they have in their community, etc. And I mean, I mean, I got elected to, to, to uh, Hampton Vale. I am so pleased. I love Hampton Vale. It's, it's fabulous. And, you know, and I, I work well with, them, with most of the people there. We've got a lot of things resolved. And um, it's good fun, and I'm really enjoying that at the moment. So, as you know, I became leader of the council, I think it was in 2010 or 2009, and um, Peterborough has gone from... uh, The expression I use is when I took over as leader, Peterborough was negotiating 
with St Peter at the pearly gates. It had died, and they hadn't quite realised whether it was going to heaven or to hell. I remember this. I remember yeah. it well. And, it, and yeah. Peterborough <clears throat> was really bad. I mean, when it came to, you know, where is it on the investment table for people to come and put new, buy, you know, buy new shops and invest mm. in the city? It wasn't on the table at all. It had fallen off the cliff and was was drowning. You know, I mean, the whole thing about about me becoming leader was that as far as I was concerned, it was about facilitate. It was facilitating the investment and the growth of the city. And I was fortunate enough to have a really good team. You know, the cabinet were fabulous. Mm. The conservative group were great. Everybody was supporting the idea that we needed to grow. We needed to build more houses. We needed better, a better and more lively shopping centre. There is no comparison between the shopping centre we have today and the shopping centre uh, and the city centre we had when I became leader. It just isn't any comparison at all. No, there really isn't. I mean, I remember when we, we started Progressive end of 2006 and we moved into the city centre in 2008 and we were right in the centre on Queen Street, which is just off the, yeah. the, the main, um, one of the main, uh, the main central precinct. And I, I remember there was, there was a building opposite half full there were shops, a lot of shops closing down, not many restaurants, and the place was dead on a Friday, Saturday, well, every night of the week, really. And, I mean, you you, you developed that whole area, repaved it, and um, I don't know how many private equity-type restaurants and other, other new shops and businesses that have gone in there, but the place is buzzing now. Yeah. On, a, on a Saturday and Sunday and Friday night, you've, you've got people walking around the, the centre, it's vibrant, so that, that was one of your major projects? Well, you can't, in my view, a city can't survive if it doesn't have a healthy city centre. It may be great to have healthy little local centres, and that's fine. It's, great. it's necessary as well. But you've got to have a healthy city centre because it's the heart of a community. And, and let's face it, at 5 o'clock or 5.30 of an evening... When you moved into the city centre, the city centre was... That was it. Hmm. Did you ever see a human being after 5.30? They'd all gone home. They'd all they gone home. didn't want to stay no. there. And it wasn't even a safe place to stay. Hmm. So the, the secret was, it's not wasn't that difficult. It, it, you know, the answer is, get people into the city centre. There's two ways of doing that. One is to create an environment in which people want to invest, therefore shops, coffee bars, restaurants, all that sort of stuff, which we now have, and it's, it is absolutely fantastic. It's done. And you, know, and you also know that my other big thing was get people into the city centre. Mm. Get these, get these uh, you know, I, we as a council would facilitate and help anybody who wanted to build flats, convert properties into flats or homes or whatever in the city centre. Well, look at how many have been built and how many have been converted in the last five years. You've done a lot. My, some other, other of my friends have done a lot. I don't think there's an office. You, I don't think you'll find office space in the city at all now because it's all decent accommodation. Well, as far as I understand, um, half a million square foot of office space has yeah. been converted yeah. into apartments in, in the last five years. And everyone is full. Mm. And it's wonderful. And I think that's what that's what brings the, 
the interest and the life into the city centre. And it's going to continue when the riverside development is complete. What, another three or four hundred properties down there, a new town hall. The town hall will be used for whatever. I, I believe that's going to be residential as well. Uh, the city really is looking well. And when I, I, when I joke and I say, well, Mary Porter actually came and had a look at Peterborough before she wrote her report. I'm sure that's not the case. But if you read Mary Porter's report, it is what we've done in Peterborough. You know, the, the face of investment, the face of city centres will never be the same as it was 10 or 15 years ago. It's not going to ever be full of shops, just shops. City centres will be places where people live, places where people come to have a meal, have a coffee, have a glass of wine. It's changed. The world has changed. And those cities that haven't recognised that are suffering. And I suppose that's the internet and changing what habits, people, less people going to pubs. Yeah. And- you know, and, and nightclubs are all closing yeah. and, and what well, it's becoming more of a social event to go Absolutely. into the town centre now yeah. and an experience. Yeah, yeah. It, well, it's not, it's, I don't think nightclubs, I mean, there must be some nightclubs that do quite well, but, but nightclubs, I think it's much more now about even going in with families, going in with families, having a cup of coffee, you know, somebody might want a glass of wine or Prosecco or something, have something nice to eat. I think that's 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 the way forward, and I think that's the way Peterborough will continue to develop. So, Peterborough, you know, when when you when you started as the leader of the council, you know, was was in a pretty sorry state, and I should imagine that the biggest challenge, or one of the biggest challenges for you, was bringing people on board. Certainly, around you, working with you at the council, and then you know other stakeholders. To, 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 to kind of buy into this vision that you had. Mm. How, did you, how did you bring them round and how did you communicate your, your vision? Because you, you knew where you wanted to get to. You could see what this thing was going to be. But I should imagine there were a lot of doubting Thomases. Oh, very true. But, you know, the, the, thing about, the thing about our vision, I'm not going to say, you know, I'm the greatest visionary on earth. That's nonsense. But the thing about having a vision, it, it needs to be something that people buy into. So... You say to me, how difficult is it to get people involved? Well, it's not difficult if what you want to do is sensible. If you want to go and fly to the moon under your own steam, it isn't going to happen. But if you say, well, look, guys, you put everybody together and you say, right, this is what we want to try and achieve. It's very important to have at least an idea of how you're going to achieve it. You know, it's the classic chairman's view, isn't it? Mm. Where are we today? Where do we want to go? How are we going to achieve it? And how will we know when we get there? That's it. You don't need to know anything else. And that's how you develop a vision. It's about, this is where we'd like, we want a, you know, a vibrant, thriving city. How do we get there? Well, we need more growth. We need houses. We need shops. We need investment. Well, you'd have to be an idiot not to agree to, agree to that. But there are a few about, believe me. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> I can imagine you were you know, probably besieged by them. You with, know, with, 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 you know, I mean, Peter, as I said, yeah. look, you know, sometimes you just happen to be in the right place at the right time. So I'm not going to say, oh, I was brilliant or anything like that. Well, what I will say is we as a city were really lucky because at that time we ended up with a vision that was deliverable and with people who wanted to deliver it. You know, and it's like the old days when I had a friend of mine used to run the book on the race horse at uh, the race courses, and I used to, used to say to him, "Give me a tip. What's going to win?" He said, "Look, it's not as easy as you think." He said, first of all, the horse has got to 
got to be able to win. Mm-hmm. Secondly, the jockey's got to want it to win. And thirdly, the mm-hmm. owner's got to want yeah. it to win. And then you need some luck. Mm. You know, and that's, and, and, and it's the same. And if you, you know, if you're running a city, you're running a hospital, you're running a business, you need to have a vision that people will sign up to and one that makes sense. So, you know, during your time at the council, obviously you had a whole load of projects and you've been through some of them. I know there was, you must have had a big vision for the growth of the city as well, because Peterborough is now, what, the fastest growing city by population in in the country? One of the fastest. It was when I was leader. I'm not quite sure it's actually the fastest anymore, but it's very near the top. It's third, fourth, something like that. So... There must have been a plan to to achieve that. Yeah, we had a plan to achieve it. And it's about creating the new townships, identifying the land that you want to redevelop, making it feasible for the developers to come in and do it. And and we had had one of the first local development plans that was ever approved was Peterborough's. Tremendous team. You know, again, you say to me, one of the very first things, what was one of the very first things you did? I'll tell you one of the very first things that I did was to sort out the planning department. Mm. You know, it, it would be fair to say that when, before I became leader, if you went into the planning department, the answer would be no, unless you can prove to us that we can't refuse it. Mm. Yeah? Interesting. That's, it's an interesting psychology. Yeah, but it's one that makes sure you don't go anywhere and don't yeah. do anything, yeah. right? But within a year of me becoming leader, if you'd have gone into the planning department, you, they would have said to you, yeah, okay, let's see how this can be done. And then you would have only got a refusal if the refusal was the only answer. Mm, yeah. you know? And one of the other things we introduced was pre-consultation. Because you and I are both property developers. There is nothing worse on this earth than going to a planning department saying, listen, I want to do this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they say, yeah, do this, do that. We'll be fine. Then you put a planning application in and they refuse what they've told you they will accept. Mm. Can't happen. Well, when I was leader, that didn't happen anymore because one of the rules we introduced was if a developer comes in for a pre-application and you've given that, that developer your view and told that developer what is acceptable to you when that developer makes the application based on what you've told them you approve it so effectively you're making them accountable for, for their advice absolutely yeah which and, is... you know you now pay for the pre-app who who's got a problem paying for a pre-app exactly i love pay i love uh, playing yeah. for application yeah absolutely because surely it, it takes you closer to getting the consent well but then you know don't you you haven't spent all the money on a full planning application. You yeah. get there and get a refusal. Who on earth wants that? No, it's uh, it, no place to be. So, Marco, you've got a, a magazine provisioning business amongst you know other interests. That's something you've grown over a number of years. Could you could you just go into how you inspire the the people in that business to to, to help you grow it and? You know, how you get new customers and, 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 and really how you've made it into a success. Well, I have to say, to be fair, it's my partner that does all that now. <laughs> I've retired basically from the business. We, we've got a 50-50 partnership and uh, she's the lady that does all the work. I built it and ran it for many, 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 many years. And then about four or five years ago, we had some difficulty and we merged two businesses together into one. It is now what very successful, does really, really well. But I've now diverted myself into a number of other things. I mean, I, as you know, I enjoy being a non-executive director. Yeah. I'm a chartered director, 
of the Institute of Directors. And the thing, and the thing that I'm always looking for is new non-executive directorships because, not just because you get paid, or obviously everybody has to live, but it's about the interest, especially if it's something different where you can apply your skills to a new business but you'd be surprised that common sense, vision is something that most businesses need and good management is something people that most businesses need. So, you know, I, I do that as I do that. We have a nursery business with the 94 places for children. And that's quite interesting. It doesn't make a lot of money, but it's the sort of thing that you do for as, as a community thing because it's in a very, very, very poor part of the, of the city. And I enjoy helping communities that that, 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 that that struggle. It's something I've always done. You know, there's no point in being, let in inverted commas, a successful businessman if you don't care about your neighbour. Now, you called me, I don't know, you might say it's a bit mother, you know, motherhood and apple pie, but, but I do think those things are re- really important. I think that's the sort of thing that inspired me to go into the health service, inspired me to become a politician, because it's that, it's like that idea of serving the community. It's great to make money. It's great to be successful and it's great to be at the top of the tree. But quite frankly, of what use is it to you if you're not helping the person that's at the bottom of the tree who's trying to make a living? And you've certainly helped us uh, a number of times within our business at Progressive Property. Effectively, you've come along to board meetings and, you know, sat there as a, as a non-exec director. So that, that's, that's something that you do for a number of businesses. Yeah. We can go into that in a little bit more detail later on, but I, I know um, I know I've certainly gained a lot of insight and 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 knowledge from from the help that you've given us in our trading business, yeah. uh, separate separate from property. So that that's quite interesting. So over the years, you've had some pretty big setbacks, yeah, because you couldn't you couldn't be where you are no. if you hadn't. There there are a few people who never fail, but it's probably because they don't do a lot. And they're telling you lies. <laughs> well, I think that's it, isn't it? Um, so you know, you, you you must have had some pretty big setbacks. How do you come back from those? How do you kind of you know repair the you know lo- losing an election? You know yeah. that must be pretty brutal. I've yeah. never been in that position, but one minute you're in a job, it's not like you know you get a, a week to pack your desk up or whatever, or maybe you do, but it, it, it's pretty immediate. Yeah. You know how how do you do? I suppose with your own, how do you deal with your own psychology and you you know, get yourself back up and, and running again. Yeah. Well, I can only speak for myself. I can't speak for anybody else. But if you'd have been an Italian immigrant in the UK in the early 50s, you'd understand how difficult life was. And if you were the kind of person that didn't stand up for yourself and didn't have confidence in your own ability to deliver what you wanted to deliver, you'd have rolled up in a, cur- in a corner and you'd have just died. You know, so for me, uh, I used to get beaten up every day on the way to school, literally every day on the way to school until I was about 10 or 11 years old. Uh, and, and that didn't stop until I went to senior school. And then suddenly something happened. I went to ski- senior school. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm exaggerating a bit. And I was probably three foot tall. And I went, I left junior school. And I was three foot tall. I went to senior school. And I was four foot six. You know, and by the time I was 16, I was 100 kilos. I used to train every day. I used to throw the javelin, the shot, the discus. So people stopped messing about with me. Mm. But, but the reality of it is that I'd learned to take the knocks and to say, well, if you roll over, you're finished. Mm. So you just got to start again, you know, and being bullied, I suppose, 
it, well, not I suppose, for, so, for people it's a terrible thing. But for me, it probably helped me build my character. And it's the strength it's given me to carry on. And you're right, you know, you, you, let's face it, I think I was a really good leader. That's my opinion. Not everybody would agree with you, but it happens to be my opinion. And I, I can genuinely say I took Peterborough from the brink of death to being one of the most successful cities in the country. And then I lost the seat. You know, well, how the hell does that happen? But it happened. Now, I'm not going to sit there and cry about it. I mean, I can tell you it was horrible for two or three days. But you just move on and you go and do something else. Now, if your entire life is a failure, then it must be really, really difficult. But I wouldn't say that my entire life was a failure. I've got four fantastic kids. I've succeeded in most of the things that I've done. You know, and so anybody that says to you they've never had a setback or they've never had any difficulty is a liar. The thing is, you're right in what you said. If you don't ever have a setback, it means you've never done anything. You know, but my life, thank God, has been incredibly interesting. It's been fulfilling, interesting, varied and full. You know, you've you known me for a while. Mm. I mean, it's full. Yeah. It's bang on all yeah. the time, you know, and I just love it and I enjoy it. And at the moment, I'm getting a lot of pleasure out of being a councillor at Hampton. But I'm also getting a lot of pleasure. I keep saying to everybody, I'm getting ready to die. Now, I don't <laughs> intend to die for about another 100 years, yeah. but I'm preparing my estate because I want to make the pain of having to pay inheritance tax at <laughs> <laughs> 40% as, focus as, uh, yeah, as little yeah. as possible for yeah. my children you yeah. know so I'm doing all the things that are completely yeah. legal and legitimate yeah. to put my affairs in order and that believe it or not it's not easy mm. it's not easy it's not quick and it, you know and it has to be done yeah. and then you have to hope you live for another seven years really mm. so you know that's preoccupying my mind and, and I'm doing lots of things and we've got some really interesting stuff it bubbling away as you know I, I really enjoy being a non-exec director so I mean, I've got non-exec directorships in some startups I've got access to money so new money and we're looking at some really interesting things you've been involved with um, some energy projects haven't you yeah. with there was uh, an air source uh, system which you yeah. were you, you uh, well, were renewable, renewable the, 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 the thing that we succeeded at was getting a planning permission for a Section 36 development in Peterborough for an 88 megabyte waste to energy plant. Now, we think, we think that that's now been financed and we're hoping that in the next few months we'll begin to see that come out the ground in Storage Bar Road. So that would be, that would be very nice. But I also sit on the board of a company that builds renewables equipment for this sort of thing and that's really quite interesting that's doing extremely well they're in the biomass field biomass power field yeah. so you know that's really interesting i'm looking at some i can't say too much but i'm looking at some new technology which i mean if you could actually deliver it and it works it's going to change the world and when i say change the world <laughs> Believe me, yeah. I'm prone to exaggerating sometimes. It's, it's my, you know, it's my enthusiasm and passion. Yeah. But believe me, that if this technology works, it will change the world. We will get the closest thing to free energy that anybody has got to so far. And there probably will be other steps. Then somebody will can can with fusion. I think it is. It's called, isn't it? Fusion when you when you can get uh, clean power. But this particular technology that we're looking at at the moment. Very, very, very exciting. 
If it works, it's going to be magic, really magic. You're sounding more and more like Elon Musk every day, Marco. <laughs> yeah. This is fascinating. I wish I had his money. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so do I. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. So, you know, we've, we've talked, spoken a lot about, you know, you, you're an Italian immigrant. You know, you, you had to make ends meet. And we, just before we started this, you were talking about how to make, Batteries last longer, yeah. and you uh, you're working out how to do that on podcasts, incidentally. <laughs> and um, yeah, and I I know certainly within our business, I've been the one that's kind of gone round and tried to reduce the costs, and, yeah. and Rob's there probably focusing on trying to grow the revenue Fair more. Enough. And it's it's a different you know different people do different things. You love saving money in your businesses and in your yeah. investments, so you know how. How, if somebody wanted to save the most money in their business and control the costs, what would you what would you advise them to do? Well, the first thing I would advise them is make sure that's the right thing to do, mm. because actually saving money is not necessarily always the answer. You know, there is nothing worse than starting a business and you haven't got enough money. So it's not always the answer to go in there and save money. Sometimes saving money can be a huge mistake. In fact, one of the reasons Peterborough has done so well as a city is because we have a £100 million investor safe fund. So, you know, yes, you save money if money is being wasted. Mm. But if to save money for the sake of saving money can be really counterproductive. If you, you know, if you've got a very productive... I mean, a simple thing may be that you might have a very, very good member of staff that is excellent at his or her job and you decide to not give him or her a pay rise, and she goes, or he goes, okay, you've saved some money, but what have you done to the business? So saving money is not always the answer. In fact, you know, the answer is, yes, the business must run efficiently, and you shouldn't have waste. But you need to have enough money to invest when the opportunity arises. And that investment is generally in people. I used to be on the board of Standard Life Healthcare. It was one of the most enjoyable non-execs I ever had. And I think I was extremely successful as a non-exec on their board. I saved them a fortune. Now, what was their secret? They won most of the awards for business awards for healthcare year after year after year after year. Why? Not because they had the best IT in the world, not because they had the best equipment in the world, it was because they had the best trained people in the world. And when you rang their, when you rang their, their, their centre, you got somebody that was actually there who wanted to help, wanted to please, realised you were a good customer and was going to look after you. And that's why, A, they did so well, and B, they kept winning all the awards. And that's what we must remember. Business is about customers. In the end, there is a customer. It may be, I don't know how remote it may be, depending on the business that you've got. But in the end, you've got a customer, and that customer has got to come away happy. Okay, so Marco, you've, you've given us some great insights into, into how to, you know, to, to grow those businesses. But when people are starting out, and they haven't got any money, they need to access that capital from somewhere, a little bit like your your renewable projects. Yeah. There's a pot there, the, the 100 million at the council, that money comes from somewhere and it needs funding. How would someone find money to start a business initially? I think that's, that's probably the most difficult bit of the lot, isn't it? 
once you, it's just finding money to start a business is the most difficult thing that an entrepreneur is ever going to have to do. You know, once you're successful, everybody throws it at you, mm, don't they? Yeah. You know, and if they think you've got a successful track record, everybody wants to get on the bandwagon. But it's that bit at the beginning, isn't it? And you'd be surprised how many people go to family and friends to, to fund it, and then hopefully the bank might help them. It is the most difficult thing to do. You know, a lot of people go to angels, business angels, and, and, and that kind of investment. But it's the bit that get you off the ground, which is the most difficult thing. And the thing with most businesses, it's not even the money. Most people have got an idea about a business. They know what they would like to do, but they've not got the capacity or the managerial skills to actually run a business. Because the thing that kills most businesses, believe it or not, is not whether or not they're profitable, but it's the cash flow. And so many people forget that. You can have the most profitable business in the, mm. in the world, but if you've got bills to pay and the money... You know, if you've got bills to pay in three months, you're not getting paid for nine months, you've got a serious problem. And and so, actually, most businesses, probably in the first few months or couple of years of their existence, need to be mentored. And they need to be mentored by people who at least got the basics of how you run a business. And you don't be surprised how the, 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 percentage of, the percentages of business that survive and succeed because they've been mentored is much, much higher than the average success rate. And when I was the deputy chairman of EDA, the East of England Development Agency, we actually used to, we actually used to fund a mentoring scheme. And I would do a bit of mentoring too myself. And it was extremely successful. And it's a great thing to do, you know. So, you know, people like yourself, myself and what have you, I still now have people I mentor if I'm asked. That's fascinating, Marco. Marco, because you've, you know, you you've got so much on the go all the time, and you're you're still happy to impart your time. You know, things like this today for the podcast. I know when I come and see you, you know, with with other stuff that we're doing together, you've you, you've got time for it. So, uh, I think that kind of paying it forward concept you were talking about helping people at the bottom, yeah. that certainly comes back, doesn't it, uh, and comes back round you know, in all sorts of forms. Well, you know, my philosophy in life is really simple. Don't ever be nasty if you can be nice, you know? Hmm. I mean, you'd be surprised how many people have exactly the opposite philosophy, you know? And, and it's really, really, really true what goes around, comes mm, around, you know, the, you know these expressions, they're really true. You know, don't be nasty on the way up because you'll yep. expect it on the way down. It is so true. So my philosophy in life is help people if you can, put, you know, do what you can for the community where it's possible. I mean, clearly I have a family, a mortgage, just like everybody else, and, and they have got to come first. But you must, in my opinion, you must never, ever, ever ignore the community you live in. You must never ignore people that need help. And, you know, I mean, even down to the guy, I mean, I've, got, I've got one guy in town who, he's homeless, yeah? Now, no matter when or where, whenever I go past him, I always give him some money. Always, without question. And some people would say, well, that's really stupid because he's probably going to go and buy drugs or, or whatever. But I can't help it. I won't do it for everybody, but I do it for him. And, and the other night, a girl, a girl came over to me, a lady came over to me, said, I was standing on the steps of, an, of a place, and she said to me, she said, you know, mister, can you help? I haven't eaten for days. 
And I said, well, yeah, I can help. Come across the road and come on, come on, buy a, a sandwich and a drink, you know, and I'll pay for it. Mm. You know, I probably would not have given her 10 quid. Yeah. Because I'm not sure she would have actually gone and bought some food. And But, you know, to actually take her across the... And I've done that, you know, how many times have I done that at King's Cross? You know, where I've taken the... I won't give them the money, but I'll go, you know, go and buy a, a, a sandwich or a you know, a crusty roll and a drink and, you know, I don't know. I don't know, you know. And perhaps I'm trying to get some points. <laughs> <laughs> you certainly, when you do that, you, you certainly know where the money's going yeah. as well. Don't you? Sometimes I, I feel like when I, I give to these big charities, yeah. it, it, it kind of uh, pays for a couple of folders for, yeah. um, you know, something that might not get used. And yeah. Of course, some are better than others, but certainly when you you go direct yeah. to the individual in need yeah. and 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 gift them some money i think um you, you know you, you oh. get to see where it goes don't you and uh, that's right yeah, um, yeah. and I some think, direct benefit hey we're all different we've all got different ways of doing things i just think it's important that you just remember that you know part you're part of a community it's a mm. bit like why am i why am i interested in renewable energy and stuff like that well, because not just because I'm interested in renewable energy, I might make some money out of it or whatever, and it may be a good business. I'm interested because I'm interested in the environment. I'm interested in where we live, where we live. You know, Mark Twain said, you know, I'm interested in tomorrow because I want to live there or something similar to that, mm. you know. And that's the way I see it is, you know, you, you, why would you and I want to fall out? It would be stupid, wouldn't it? I mean, what's the point? If you can be friends, be friends. If you've got a fallout, well, you know, if you've got to bare your teeth at the, mm. for the appropriate at the appropriate time, well, then that's a different issue. But you've got to be prepared to do it. But you know, go through life being a decent human being, you, you feel better for it. Yeah, <laughs> you certainly will. Yeah, you do. You yeah, know. yeah. So I know you know. There's lots of people watch the news and yeah. they they read newspapers and. Yeah. You know, sometimes they, they take, you know, business advice or yeah. investing <clears throat> advice or, you know, life, you know, advice about life and, and, and whatever else it is from the media. What advice would you give people when looking at the media and using that as a, a yardstick or, a, you know, a source for information when, when working out a business strategy or, or working out how to run their business or how to run their life? I would say that most things that you hear in the media, reading the media, you need to check. Mm. That's not to say that they're not telling you the truth, but they will put their slant on it. They're human beings. They need to make news. And so they will tend to put their slant on what they say. So I would say to everybody listening to the TV, reading the newspapers or whatever, if you see something that you think, might be of interest check it out it may be right but the chances are somebody would have tilted it towards their way of thinking and you know you've only got to look at brexit haven't you i mean we've now voted to come out of europe from an economic from an economic point of view mm. was that the right decision i think a lot of people that voted to come out of europe will suffer because of it now, eventually, it may be great, and with the economy may grow, and we may all do really, really well out of it. But I think there's going to be a while of uncertainty that is going to create problems for some of us who are not as well off as others. And I, I suppose, you know, the way I'd see this is why why take the risk? Why, 
we just don't know how this is going to end up. But I suppose there might be some opportunities along the way. Yeah, well, I mean, people like you and I, who have been used to business all of our lives, you look at business as a risk, don't you? Business is a risk, mm. right? So you quite rightly say, well, why would I take a risk when I'm doing all right? Mm. You know, and that would be exactly my view. Mm. I'm doing okay. Why should I endanger that? If if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Exactly. But of course, you've got to remember that there are a lot of people that are not doing all right. Mm. And therefore, for them, a leap in the dark may be just the same as where they are. Yeah. So you've got to understand that. And yeah, you're right. There may very well be opportunities. But I think it'll take a while. I mean, you know, I was, again, I was listening to the news. You were saying to me, how much notice do you take on but I was listening to the news and then I checked it out. Apparently, we're going to have to pay something like a £60 billion penalty to come out of the EU. Yeah. Right? £60 billion. That's, mm-hmm. nearly, that's nearly the cost of financing the NHS. Mm. It's incredible. You know, it's yeah. incredible. Mm. And then we've got to pay whatever it is that we've got to pay to, you know, to the markets and all that. Mm. I mean, look, it may be the right thing to do. It may not be the right thing to do. Only time will tell. Would I have taken the risk? No. But, you know, that's my view. And other people may see it differently. But it's going to be a little while before we see any benefit. That's the thing I'm sure about, is it will be a little while before we see any benefit of coming out of the European Union. Marco, it's, it's been fascinating to talk to you. You've obviously got a whole wealth of experience I don't think it has to finish here, though, in terms of how, how people can kind of interact with you. You clearly sit on a lot of boards. You, you, you do a lot in the community. How, if somebody has got a business or they've, they've, they've got some sort of organization and they want you to, you know, provide them with, with you know, information and maybe sit on their board or, or whatever it is, how can they get in contact with you? Well, I'm on LinkedIn. The name is Marco Seresti. There ain't that many about and <laughs> uh, 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 as far as I'm concerned, there's, as far as I know, there's only another couple in the whole world. So I'm on LinkedIn as Marco Seresti. Um, just Google me. <laughs> I mean, you'll you, you soon find me if you Google me. The local authorities are another way they can get hold of me. Uh, I'm on Facebook. So I'm not difficult to get hold of if anybody really wants to get hold of me. And I'm quite happy to help. You know, if anybody's looking for a non-exec director, I'm, you know, if it's something that would interest me, I'd be happy to do it. But at the moment, I've got lots of stuff happening, and I'm really quite excited about the future. You know, so I'm happy as as things are. But never say no to an opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> Always the deal maker. Absolutely, Marco. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Marco, thank you. Really, really enjoyed it. That's been Mark Homer for Mark My Words. Yeah.